What if you could have a career where the opportunities are as vast as our nation, where it's not about mission statements, but a shared mission? At U.S. Customs and Border Protection, we go beyond to protect more than borders. From ship to shore, air to ground, cities to local communities, CBP agents and officers are keeping people safe. Join U.S. Customs and Border Protection and go beyond for something far greater than yourself. Learn more at cbp.gov careers. Welcome to this edition of Headlines with Frankie Darcel, a public service show from 105.3 WDAS-FM. We welcome your questions and comments. Join in on the conversation online at WDASFM.com and on our Facebook and Twitter pages. Now here's your host, Frankie Darcel. It's Headlines with Frankie Darcel and joining me from the Philadelphia Sunday Sun, Monica Peters. Hey, Monica, what's happening? Hey, good Sunday morning, Frankie. Always a pleasure to check in with you each and every week. And I'm looking forward to your interview this morning with Philadelphia DA uh, Larry Krasner. This week's issue of The Sun on the cover, Minority News Publications, fire back at Philly.com and Inquirer after an article that they published that many perceived as being racist. And the article uh, basically discouraged uh, businesses and specifically the sheriff's office from advertising sheriff's cells in community and minority newspapers. We also have the 2018 primary election guide and coverage, and Anita Connor, CPA, schools entrepreneurs at the Philadelphia Black Public Relations Society, wealth building workshop. Also, Lutheran make history nationwide by electing two black women bishops. Also, a North Philly Rhodes Scholar uh, gives the commencement speech at Community College of Philadelphia. We have This Week in History, All Around Philly, and a whole lot more. Uh, if you want to reach the Philadelphia Sunday Sun, you can always reach our office at 215-848-7864. You can reach us on social media on Facebook and Instagram at Philadelphia Sunday Sun and on Twitter at Philadelphia Sun News. And uh, this is Monica Peters, social media editor for the Philadelphia Sunday Sun. You have a great show and a fabulous Mother's Day, Frankie. Have a good week. Thank you so much. It's Headlines on 105.3 WDAS. Greetings. This is Blondell Reynolds-Brown. Tuesday, May 15th, is Election Day in the city of Philadelphia and across the Commonwealth. In addition to primary elections for governor and members of Congress, voters in Philadelphia will have the chance to join the hashtag MeToo movement and change the way our city does business. The ballot question is simple. Should every employee of the city of Philadelphia be required to receive mandatory sexual harassment training? I hope that you will join me in answering yes. But at the end of the day, no matter your political view, make sure to get out and vote on Tuesday, May 15th. Take 15 minutes out of your busy day and walk to the polls. Exercise your voice. Vote Tuesday, May 15th. This is Blondell Reynolds-Brown. All right. Thank you so much, Councilwoman. It's Headlines on 105.3 WDAS. The phone lines are open for your questions and comments. Now, back to Headlines with Frankie Darcel on 105.3 WDAS. Frankie Darcel with you. It is 105.3 WDAS. It's headlines. Thank you so much for joining us. And of course, we are preparing for our Cracker Barrel Sister Strut, which is happening on Saturday, June 16th. It is going to be at Xfinity Live. And you can go to the website at WDASFM.com and you can register there. So we're looking forward to seeing you. You can get your team together or you can feel free to walk with me. I am so excited to have as my guest, and this lady and I go back literally uh, about 20 years this year. 
And yes, yeah, right. When when I had the opportunity to meet her, uh, it was because of my mother's diagnosis. Her name is Dr. Lisa Newman. Um, she is the director of breast cancer unit at the Henry Ford uh, Cancer uh, Institute. And um, she has expanded uh, breast cancer and prevention and worked in this area for a number of years. So let me just introduce Dr. Newman. Dr. Newman, good morning. How are you? Hi, Frankie. Thank you so much for having me on your show. It's always a pleasure to chat with you and to be a part of the wonderful, powerful outreach efforts that you always implement with regard to breast health awareness. You know, I got to tell you something. I can read her resume. I'm going to do that later because I want you to understand how brilliant uh, this this woman is. But I want to give you just a snapshot of how we got to know each other. And, and, And my mother, who said nothing, um, I, and I remember her saying, I need to go to the hospital and, uh, for a checkup. And I drove her to the, uh, hospital. I dropped her off and literally down the street was a little shopping center. I went to the shopping center. I got a phone call and they said, um, you need to get back to the hospital. When I walked into the room and I looked at my mother's face, I knew that something was wrong. Um, and standing there was Dr. Newman. And I sat down and Dr. Newman said, your mother has breast cancer. And I was literally in shock because we never had that discussion in our family. Uh, To our knowledge at the time, no one had ever been diagnosed with breast cancer. And here my mother sits um, uh, being diagnosed with breast cancer. And at her age and at that stage in her life, you think you're going to have some high blood pressure issues and things like that, but not breast cancer. And that started the journey for Dr. Newman and I. Um, Let me just say, at that time in 98, we couldn't say breast on the radio. Uh, There were no real big walks or anything at the time. And African-American women in particular did not talk about breast cancer. Um, Dr. Newman has worked with a number of initiatives. And as a result of that, um, there are a number of organizations that she works with as well. Um, where we wanted to get black women to actually start talking about the importance of mammograms, self-breast examinations, and the like. And out of that, um, the Sister Strut was formed in 1998. And Dr. Norman, you have been with us every step of the way. There's a whole lot of steps in 20 years. Um, (laughs) And so as a result of my mother's treatment, called my sisters and brothers around the country. My mother had surgery. And praise God, it's been 20 years, and she is still breast cancer-free. Um, but who knew that last year uh, in June, I had my annual mammogram. Um, and at the time, um, they said, we see something that we didn't see last year. Um, I switched doctors um, advocating for my health. I switched doctors. You guys have heard that story. And later was told that I had breast cancer. There was one person, after talking with my sister and my best friend, that I wanted to speak with immediately, and that was Dr. Lisa Newman, who is with me today. Got in to see Dr. Newman that afternoon, and Dr. Newman, and for those people who are saying, you know, oh, we want to see some HIPAA, I, I want to talk about it because it was important for women to understand that, one, it was my own advocacy um, when I knew that when they said they saw something, I wanted to get an answer really quickly, and then, two, my annual mammograms. So Dr. Newman... Um, was my surgeon and Dr. Newman, you have my permission um, to talk about um, my surgery, my treatment, my surgery, my diagnosis. So hello, Dr. Newman. Welcome to my show. I think I've interviewed Dr. Newman maybe 
50 times? Oh, Frankie, <laughs> I just lo- so love you. You're an amazing woman. And what you just described is such a, a beautiful example of why you are a role model for so many others. As you mentioned, breast cancer is just a, it's a dreaded disease, no other way to put it. But there are effective treatments out there for it, and there are very effective ways to detect it early when the treatments are more likely to be effective. Mm-hmm. Breast cancer is a bigger problem in the African-American community. Death rates from breast cancer in African-American women are 40% higher than they are in the white American community. Now, we want to eliminate the threat of breast cancer for all women, Mm -hmm. but we certainly have to address the fact that it disproportionately affects African-American women in terms of its uh, threat to to longevity. Mm -hmm. Now, what you just described about your experience is what every woman needs to know. We need to be armed against breast cancer by early detection. And the best way to detect a breast cancer early is to be aware of your own breast evaluation. If you notice a new lump in your breast, if you develop a bloody nipple discharge, if you have any inflammatory changes in the skin of your breast, you need to seek medical attention immediately. Mm You need to start having your mammogram at age 40, and Mm -hmm. you need to have it every year. But even if your mammograms are normal, if you notice a change in your breast, you have to seek medical attention immediately. That's the best way to protect yourself. Dr. Newman, let me go back to this. So one of the things I know, because I was horrified um, when I got the news that I actually was positive, that, that the... Um, test results came back that I was that I had breast cancer and I knew though at that moment I was going to beat it I said what do I need to do Um, and one of the things that we talked about when I came to see you the first time and which was one of the reasons I wanted to see you specifically as well was that you knew my family history Um, my mother was stage three I was stage one Um, when a woman is diagnosed Explain to people who are hearing for the first time the importance of the early detection from a medical perspective in terms of the treatment. Because the good thing for me and the blessing for me, and I just buried a a girlfriend a year before who fought breast cancer for 15 years. So there was even some psychological things that I was having to deal with, but I wanted to be in the hands of who I considered to be the best person on the planet. Because the other thing was I knew that I I really didn't understand the, the... power of once cancer was in the lymph nodes and what would happen until I really dived in and became a survivor as well. So could you explain from the time a woman is diagnosed um, what the next step is? Absolutely. Uh, But getting back to your original point about the importance of knowing family history, I do want to emphasize the fact that there are some women who do have inherited predisposition for breast cancer, and women who have inherited predisposition are often women that have multiple relatives with breast cancer, relatives that have had breast cancer diagnosed at a young age, or women that have uh, breast cancer occurring in male uh, relatives, another red flag for Mm -hmm, inherited mm -hmm. predisposition. Position. Mm-hmm. Those women need to see genetic counselors and they may end up needing to have genetic testing and they may need to get specialized breast cancer screening such as breast MRI in addition to mammograms or they may need to get breast cancer screening with mammograms at starting at even younger ages compared to age 40. Yeah. So that family history is very, very important. 
Now, getting back to your uh, uh, discussion of early detection, the reason why early detection is so very important is because we want to detect a breast cancer before it has the biologic capacity to spread to other organs of the body, such mm-hmm. as the liver, the lungs, the bones because it's that potential for spread to and damage to other organs that is the potentially life-threatening risk of breast Mm -hmm. cancer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. When we catch that cancer early, such as when we catch it in the form of an abnormality on the mammogram that isn't big enough to be felt as a lump, then you're catching a breast cancer that is much less likely to have traveled to other organs and damaged those other organs, and you can focus on treating the tumor in the breast. Mm -hmm. So you do still need to take care of that disease in the breast, which is usually going to involve surgery. But if the cancer is small enough, we can often perform a lumpectomy Mm -hmm. and save the breast, and then that lumpectomy is followed up by radiation to kill any microscopic cancer cells that are hiding in other parts of the breast after the lumpectomy. Mm -hmm. Some women will still need to have a mastectomy, which is total removal of the breast, but for women who do need to have a mastectomy, our plastic surgery colleagues have wonderful, wonderful ways of doing breast reconstruction, and often that breast reconstruction can be done at the same time as the mastectomy surgery. Mm-hmm. Now. For women that are undergoing surgery for breast cancer, whether it's a lumpectomy or a mastectomy, we will usually need to also perform a special surgical procedure to check the lymph nodes or the glands in the underarm area. Mm -hmm. This is what we call a sentinel lymph node biopsy, where we try to identify and remove those most important lymph nodes in the underarm that are responsible for draining the breast. Mm -hmm. And we check those lymph nodes because if there is cancer hiding in those lymph nodes, that's a red flag. It's a clue that the woman might have microscopic cancer cells hiding in other parts of her body, and those are women who will often need to receive chemotherapy to treat their cancer in addition to the surgical management. Mm -hmm. So I know nobody likes to hear about chemotherapy because it has a lot of side effects that nobody would want to deal with if they could avoid it, but when chemotherapy is necessary, it can truly be life-saving. All right. So again, checking those lymph nodes is important information. And Dr. Newman, I don't want to catch you off guard, and that was so important to me because once we did the surgery, and that's when you all were able to take the tissue and then test the tissue and look to see what was in my lymph nodes, nothing was there. Um, speak to, you can speak to my case about after the surgery, what you saw. Yeah. So when we do surgery for breast cancer in terms of the lumpectomy surgery, often we do that surgery in conjunction with uh, health assistance from the radiologist to pinpoint the exact location Mm -hmm. of the tumor in the breast because we want to make sure that we remove that tumor with a rim of normal-appearing breast tissue surrounding it so that we minimize the chances that the cancer will grow back. And that's how we also maximize the effectiveness of the radiation. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We right. find those mm-hmm. sentinel lymph nodes by injecting a special dye into the woman's breast, and then when we are looking at the tissue in the underarm, we identify the lymph nodes that drained that dye, and those are the sentinel lymph nodes that we remove and send off to the laboratory for microscopic analysis. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. 
All right. Now, one of the things that was so great, because I just kind of said this is going to be it there. It was just wonderful to know that there was nothing about lymph nodes. Um, exactly. and, and I only had to have uh, radiation and it was, um, you know, consistent radiation for six weeks um, every day for six weeks. And and uh, still working on, you know, my diet as we speak and different things to just better improve what it is I was doing, not to get back to that place. But um so cancer-free, right, Dr. Newman? That's right, absolutely. <laughs> cancer-free. Let me let me go back to the um, the family history. You know what, Dr. Newman? Um, when we thought, when I initially thought about uh, family history, and as much as I've you know advocated for breast cancer and breast cancer health and walks and the like, I never thought about my family outside of my mom, my sisters, my nieces and nephews. I didn't think about Dr. Newman. My grandmother, her sisters, their children. When I went home last summer to the family reunion, my grandmother's sister, my second cousins, three of them have survived breast cancer. Is that right? So my family history, so when I thought of family history, um, I was just thinking my mom, my grandmom, and my great-grandmother. Well, my family, those are the people that I talk to on a regular basis, but that's not my family history. My grandmother's sister's daughter's children are, survive, are, are breast cancer survivors. One of them has had a reoccurrence. And so I was saying to my sisters, they're our family history, too. That's right. So our yeah. family history is just not your immediate family. It's your grandparents' family as well, particularly my grandmother's sister, her daughters, her daughter, and her children. Three of them were uh, positive for breast cancer. And, Dr. Newman, you know, we talked about um, stop the silence because we have to talk about it. And again, in 1998, we couldn't talk about it. And that was one of the reasons why we started the walk. Because when we did start the walk, the people who came to me and said, you know, Frankie, I'm going through it right now. Colleagues who said, I'm going through it right now. Or my mother just went through it and we just kept it quiet. So it was the Stop the Silence movement at the time. Yeah, that's right. Uh, Stop the Silence is a critical message. And especially in African-American families, we have to explore that extended family history, as you just mentioned, to find out who has been affected by cancer. And mm-hmm. unfortunately, in African-American families, there is this um, a higher frequency of people not talking about their medical history. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But being armed with that information is extremely important, especially when it comes to understanding cancer risk. Yeah. So thank you for bringing that point up. Yeah. So this summer... When and you also the family history on both the mother's side Sorry, and, and the, the father's yeah. side is yeah. important. Yeah. You know, another issue that we see in the African-American community is that although breast cancer in men is very uncommon, it's twice as common in African-American men as it is really? in white American men. Yeah, okay. that's correct. So normally, so is there any preventative things that should men be doing their own self-breast examination as well? Absolutely, and they need to know the family history. Mm-hmm. The families that have large numbers of uh, cancers in them are families where the men will be at greater risk. Wow. 
Wow. It's hard enough to get a man to a doctor if we believe, you know, some of the stories we hear. Now they need to, yeah. you know, for breast cancer. Um, but um, Chef, uh, what is his name? He's a breast Richard cancer. Roundtree. Richard Roundtree. Yeah. He was one of the first. He said, and as a man, he said he was taking a shower. And he said, I felt it. And I thought, wait a minute. He said, I'm a man. You know, he said, I played Shaft. Um, he said, and I have breast cancer. Mm -hmm. And I said to him when I did interview him, thank you for telling your story so that other men can, you know, realize that this is not just something that women need to be concerned about. So Dr. Lisa Newman is my guest. Dr. Newman, what is it you want to share with us before we go? Well, I think that what you mentioned already is critical, early detection, breast health awareness, know your family history, and I also want to emphasize to women that have been touched by breast cancer or who know uh, friends, families, loved ones who've been touched by breast cancer, clinical trial participation Mm -hmm. is very, very important. This is the only way that we can learn more about better ways to treat breast cancer and better ways to detect breast cancer. Again, especially in the African-American community, this is important because African-American women are at higher risk for getting a particularly aggressive pattern of breast cancer that we call triple negative breast cancer. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. We need to identify better ways, more successful ways of treating triple negative breast cancer, and we can only do that through research and clinical trials. Yeah, yeah. I loved it when we had the conversation about uh, the opportunity to participate, and hands down, I said, absolutely. Because I know that my treatment was as a result of many women that came before me who participated in those clinical trials, and it is so very, very, very important um, to get that information and to to do that kind of, of research. I do want to recognize as well, because you have a relationship with them, the American Association for Cancer Research. Speaking of research, they're going to be our benefactors uh, this year uh, for the money uh, that uh, is being, for the registration, and a portion of that is going to support the research that they do. That's wonderful. Yes, the AACR is a wonderful organization, and they do some phenomenal uh, work in terms of educating the community about research and supporting research. And, Frankie, thank you so very much. You are a tremendous role model in so many ways, and your powerful, beautiful voice has worked miracles and has done wonders in terms of uh, getting more women taken care of. Yeah, i got to tell you, and I'm going to say this because, Dr. Newman, I think, you know, is is just an incredible, first of all, God has not short her anywhere. She's a, just a beautiful person, beautiful woman, beautiful spirit, a brilliant, brilliant surgeon. And you've been an even better friend. And I said to you as I was going in and, and bear with me and, 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 you know, this is so important. And I believe giving people their flowers before they can smell them. Um, and we were, we're, I was going into surgery, and so much was going on. And I had a conversation with my daughter uh, before uh, I went in for surgery. And out of everything, I said, Lord, I know I'm in the best hands. First of all, yours. And thank you for sending me Dr. Newman. And I know I'm going to get through this. And you walked over to me, and I was all strapped up. And I cannot tell you how nervous and afraid I was. And you grabbed my hand and you said, we're going to get you through this. I was like, okay, so I can deal with my high now and go to sleep. Because that was the best sleep I had. (laughs) (laughs) But you grabbed my hand, Dr. Newman. And so 
I just want to say thank you for doing what you do because you go over and above just what you do as a surgeon. Um, but for the research that you've done, Dr. Min has flown to Africa uh, doing research. And I'm going to talk more about that when I read her bio later um, to assure specifically that all women and that specifically looking at um, the aggressive cancers that African-American women have and how they should be treated. So I just want to applaud you as well, Dr. Newman, for the work that you've done and that you're continuing to do. Thank you. Thank you so much. It is an absolute honor to know you, and I am just one of your many millions of fans. Thank you so much for the opportunity to work with you on these outreach efforts. Great, and I got to get you, so and I got to get you to Philadelphia so that I can have you a part of our sister strut. And we have some other stuff we'll talk about, but we'll do that later. All right, I'm there whenever you call. <laughs> All right, Doctor Newman. Thank you so much. I love you to life. And by the way, Happy Mother's Day. Happy Mother's Day, that's right. That's yeah, happy right. Mother's Day. <laughs> now, wait a minute. So Bobby's going into a senior year. He is. He'll be a senior in the fall. And I have an older boy that's in Chicago. Wow. All good, wow. all good. Well, happy Mother's Day to you, Dr. Newman. Yeah, and yeah, big, big hug and a kiss to Fallon and to your mom, Rosa. Thank you so much. I appreciate you. We'll talk again real soon. Take care now, friend. Okay, love you. Bye-bye. Bye. It's headlines on 105.3 WDAF. The phone lines are open for your questions and comments. Now, back to headlines with Frankie Darcel on 105.3 WDAS. District Attorney Krasner, how are you, sir? I am doing half as well as you, and how are you? <laughs> I am wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And what a honor it is to finally get an opportunity to uh, speak with you. This is one of my favorite interviews I've been looking forward to doing here in Philadelphia. So thank you for your time. Well, and the, I, honor, the honor is all mine, and I would, I'm delighted to talk to you. Thank you so much. All right. So let's get started right away. First of all, congratulations to you. And it seems like uh, it's been a couple of years, and quite frankly, it's only been a couple of months. You came into the office making some very quick and swift changes uh, moving forward your agenda. How are things going in your perspective in terms of moving, moving forward? Uh, we, are, we are at about 130 days. I think we've done quite a bit as compared to the usual speed of government. But I will say this, I only wish that we could do more. It, it feels like there is so much to do. Um, and every day counts. You yeah. know, it's, it's a little bit like working working in an emergency room and saying we'll get to that soon. Um, <laughs> there's certain th- certain things that you just yeah. can't get to soon. You have to try to do them right away. And, yeah. Let me know. just say to you, one of the key things that listeners uh, called me about and called the Community Affairs Show about uh, was your initiative to end cash bail, which was something that was immediate. And major cities like Chicago, Detroit, and here in Philadelphia, there were people who were um, in jail for low-level crimes. You moved to make it effective immediately, and your reason for doing so was what? Well, uh, you know, there is a group of crimes that are not that serious, where bails that are fairly moderate, if you got money, are imposed. Let's say between $0 and $1,000 will get you out, right? Mm-hmm. The, the people who cannot pay that money are people who are broke. The people who have jobs or they have extended families that are supportive, or they have a bunch of money, it's not going to be any problem for them to get out. So you end up with two worlds. You end up with the broke people who've got to stay in jail, mm-hmm. and you end up with the people who are middle class, or maybe they, are, you know, they have other resources, who get out. We are not supposed to have prisons for poor people. We are not supposed to have debtors' prisons. Yeah. But in that category of not-so-serious offenses, that's exactly what was going on. And the thing that makes it even nuttier 
is it costs the taxpayer in Philly $115 yeah. a day or, or more mm-hmm, to mm-hmm. keep someone in jail. Yeah. I mean, why, are we, why are we beating ourselves over the head just to keep a broke person in jail? It doesn't really make sense. So yeah. we, ident- we identified 26 different uh, crimes that fall within that category. They are not violent. These are not sexual offenses. And we determined that unless there's a special circumstance, we would not be seeking money as an aspect of bail. The judges have been good with it, and we've seen significant reductions in jail population as a result. Yeah, because the whole idea about it is to assure that the individual will come back for their day in court. And you find that the majority of these people do return for their court date. That's exactly correct. Bail is not supposed to be punishment. If there's punishment, that's sentencing. Bail is supposed to get you to court so we can find out if you're guilty of what and how, and we can deal with that from there. And yes, we are finding that there is not some kind of epidemic of people who won't show up for court. They're showing up just fine. You, you as a district attorney, you know, are, are right in the middle. Um, you're not clearly the traditional district attorney or prosecutor that we hear across the country. Your, Thank you. Your direction in terms of transforming uh, the criminal justice system for some people is just a little bit scary. Let's talk really quickly about the mental health, because we know, too, that our jails and prison are starting to become mental health housing facilities. Um, how is your office dealing with those who are mentally ill and not necessarily? necessarily criminal, but a number of them are in our jail systems around the country. So one of the really difficult things that we are seeing with EMTs and police officers and ultimately with the criminal justice system is that so many mental health beds and facilities that were available, and I'm not saying they were perfect because they weren't, but they were available 25, 30 years ago, have disappeared completely. And our real mental health system has become police, EMTs, and the jail. Mm-hmm. It's just not a good system for dealing with these issues at many different levels. So, yeah. you know, there's been some progress, and we should be thankful, among others, to uh, Judge Sheila Woodwright Skipper and also Judge Neifeld in the court system for coming up with mental health courts to try to improve this. Yeah. But there's just more that we can do. And yeah. so we are, we are trying to have more diversionary programs that are applicable for people with mental health issues. We've been diligently interviewing to find people with expertise in the field, uh, you know, to assist with those programs, and we're very optimistic that we can move it in the right direction. I wanted to find out, um, and, I, and I, I'm trying to recall the specific name, but what is your position right now as we talk about the opioid uh, crisis, uh, the safe injection sites? What's your, what's your perspective on that? What, what is your position? My position is the position of a child trying to go to school in that neighborhood. Mm-hmm. Um, because we have to not just look look at people who are suffering from addiction, which is a medical problem. We have to look at how the people in those neighborhoods are affected and consider those who are not directly in the criminal system and not directly using those drugs. A child walking to school should not have to step over a bunch of dirty needles and watch somebody nodding off on their neighbor's porch and go to a park that's full of dirty needles where hep C and HIV mm-hmm, are mm-hmm. spreading. They should not have to do that. It is not good for those kids. In order for us to look out for those kids, one possibility is to have, as you call it, a supervised injection site. I would probably call it a harm reduction center where there are a number of things that are done. Number one, there's clean needles. Number two, there's a place to dispose of needles indoors in a way that is clean and safe for kids out on the street. Number three, if there's any nodding going on, it won't be on a porch. It's going to be inside a facility where the kids are not going to see it. 
I'm not sure what number I'm up to, but you're also talking about a facility where idealistic medical students are going to try to develop relationships with people who are addicted to get them into treatment. There's going to be information on that treatment. And also, very importantly, it's a facility where when someone does have an overdose, you have medical personnel who will immediately be able to revive them with naloxone, which will bring them back. If we look at this type of facility, which has been in Vancouver now, for about a decade, mm-hmm. they've had almost 3 million injections occur inside yeah. that facility. They've had a couple of hundred overdoses. They have zero deaths. Mm-hmm. All right? okay. Philadelphia has four deaths a day, four deaths a day from fatal overdoses, overwhelmingly from opiates and opioids spiked with fentanyl. And the fentanyl problem is especially volatile because it's more fatal. We're now seeing 70% of fatal opioid overdoses involving fentanyl a year ago it was just 40%. Mm-hmm. So we got to do something. We have to do something for the kid who does not have an addiction and is just trying to get to school. And we also have to do something about the fact that you have four bodies dropping a day in Philadelphia. The, I, for, for those reasons, I support yeah. harm reduction centers. Mm-hmm. The Honorable District Attorney Larry Krasner is my guest. What do you say to people Though who say, and it's my position, if you have no users, you have no dealers. Um, what do you say to people who are wrapping their mind around that idea uh, to surely and would agree with you that we want to make sure that our children are protected as well, uh, that we are somewhat legalizing for the user illegal drugs? I would, I would respectfully disagree with that. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and I say respectfully because I understand these are issues that are sensitive. It reminds me a little bit of the argument that if teenagers can't get condoms, they won't have sex. That's, I mean, that hasn't worked since the beginning of time. And mm-hmm. if we look at, at every different type of substance there is, including alcohol, the reality is that making things illegal hasn't solved the problem, and that is why prohibition fails. I think we need to be honest about this, that addiction is a medical condition, like many other medical conditions. And you're not going to simply talk people out of a medical condition, whether it is diabetes or heart disease or whether it is addiction. If we come at this as a public health uh, problem as opposed to another excuse to put as many poor people, mostly black and brown, in jail as possible, I think we will all be in a much better place. All right, all right. And, and I'm going to wrap it. Thank you so much. I cannot tell you how much I appreciate your time. And, and just a couple more questions I have for you, and, I, and, and to get uh, the, to them as quickly as I possibly can. Uh, but earlier this year, under a judge's order, you did release a list of, I think the number was 25 officers on a list, um, that was this secret list, which was interesting to me that it was even secret, uh, of officers who would not be um, scheduled to testify in certain cases. Uh, You did release that list. Where does it stand with the individuals, because some are current and former officers, where does your office stand in terms of those cases that might have been open cases? Um, Are they going to continue to be prosecuted, or is your office looking at um, re-looking at some of those cases and moving some of those cases forward? So there are a lot of... um there are a lot of different types of officers on the list. Some of the officers on the list are ones who we have determined should not be called to testify, period. And in those cases, we have to see whether there's other strong evidence. But, you know, no prosecutor should put up a witness they believe is a liar, whether that person has a uniform or not, because that's how you get innocent people in jail, mm-hmm. and that is against justice. There are other people uh, where there are questions, but the questions in our mind are not enough for us to keep them off the stand. It's just that the defense has to know because the U.S. Constitution and the Pennsylvania Constitution says you cannot hide the ball from the defense on mm-hmm. information that you know that mm-hmm. may tend to help them. Mm-hmm. And then there's another category of officers in there 
who are people that we feel content and happy to call because even though there was misconduct, we don't believe it's misconduct that shows that they're liars. I mm. mean, let's just let's mm-hmm. just say, for example, an yeah. officer who got caught for a DUI in another county and got a diversionary program. Well, that is criminal uh, activity, but it's not the kind of thing that could be used against that officer in court unless that officer says something bizarre, like, well, I've never been arrested in my life, in which case the officer has said something that is yep. untrue in, in light of the officer's history. That, that category would be one where I would expect that even though the information is there, it's not going to come into a courtroom. This is just a matter of being transparent and being fair. Mm-hmm. Has your office, um, you know, there were some that thought that there would be some challenges between your office and the police department. How is that relationship? Where does it stand? Well, the relationship with the police commissioner, in my opinion, is excellent. I think that the relationship uh, with a lot of the police brass is also excellent. I have his cell phone. He has mine. Uh, Before we make moves, we try to make sure that he's aware and we talk to him because, obviously, in his lane, the commissioner has to make choices about resources. And in our lane, we have to make choices about what we believe we should prosecute. So, for example, when we made a decision not to prosecute marijuana possession cases, the small number that were left after the mayor had already taken the rest and turned them essentially into tickets, that was something that the police commissioner needed to know because it will be a waste of resources for the commissioner to arrest people and to bring them to the station for us to say we're not going to charge them. Mm-hmm. That relationship so far, I think, has gone very well. We also have, in my opinion, an excellent relationship with uh, not only the African-American Officers Association, the Guardian Civic League, which endorsed me in the, uh, in the, after the primary and in the general, mm-hmm. but I think we also have an excellent relationship with an awful lot of officers who are just good people. I don't care what their background is, gender <laughs> or race, mm-hmm. um, who don't want to have brutal and corrupt officers making their lives more dangerous, reducing the reputation of the profession. I mean, let's be honest, the vast majority of police want to do the right thing, Mm -hmm. and they don't want to do what the police union often does, which is to defend indefensible conduct by a few corrupt and brutal officers. Mm -hmm. I mean, the bottom line is we got to be even-handed here, and if that means that you're going to jail when you do something that is a crime and you wear a uniform, just like you would have gone to jail before you put on that uniform, that's what it means. Yeah. I understand my final question that, that Mink Mail will go back before uh, the judge on May. I think that date is May 24th. Uh, there are some other legal things that needs to happen. Uh, and help me understand this as a layperson. So he goes back before the judge. She didn't recuse herself from that. But will your office or can you speak to what your office will do in terms of a new trial uh, for Meek Mill, if that's I'll, I'll, I'll say as much as I can say. Mm-hmm. So the, mm-hmm. the public record, we do not talk about what we're going to do in the future with a case, and we try not to do, talk too much about an open case. This is an open case now mm-hmm. because there has not been an official decision made about whether or not to pursue a second trial. Mm-hmm. That decision will be made, um, and it will be made after – well, let me, let me rephrase that. The, the first thing that has to happen is the judge has to decide whether or not – the judge is going to reverse that conviction. I don't have any comment on that because Mm -hmm. the judiciary is independent Mm -hmm. and it's not my job to tell them what to do. It's simply my job in my lane to make recommendations about what we think is fair and just. So we have to wait and see. If the judge does not order a new trial, then there will not be a decision 
for uh, the DA's office to make about retrying it, there may be some appeals, and we'll take it from there. Right. If the judge does order a new trial, then this office has to determine whether to drop the case, to come to some kind of a non-trial or guilty plea type agreement mm -hmm. in the case, um, or to go ahead and retry the case, and that's not something I can comment further on right now. All right. Well, you just took away my last question, but I, I'm, I knew that you that would probably be your answer. Uh, the Honorable District Attorney Larry Krasner is my guest. Thank you so very much. Um, you clearly have been one of those interviews uh, for the headline show that I have consistently uh, gotten, gotten phone calls from individuals who have respected what you've done within uh, your tenure as district attorney here in the city of Philadelphia and clearly wanted to hear one-on-one -on -one from you an interview with me. So I thank you so much for taking out your time today to speak not with me, but with the city and the citizens of Philadelphia and quite frankly, those around the world who are listening to us through the iHeart radio app. So please know that you have an open invitation at any time to come in and host the show. I don't know what kind of music you like, but I also do the public affairs show where you can sit with me as well and just answer questions um, that are so important to our audience. Well, I like a lot of music, so we may have to have some discussions <laughs> about music after we figure out what music to discuss. I, yes. will, tell you, I will tell you this, though. Yes. Somebody just got a Pulitzer whose music I like a whole lot. So oh, awesome. <laughs> Very right. good. Wonderful to talk to you. Thank you. Absolutely. Thank you so much, District Attorney Larry Krasner. Have a, have a great rest of your day. You too. Thank you. Thank you so much. It's Headlines on 105.3 WDAF. Thank you for joining us for this edition of Headlines with Frankie Darcel. The comments and opinions expressed on the show are those of the guest and not of iHeartMedia or the management of 105.3 WDAS-FM. Join us again next Sunday at 7 a.m. for another compelling hour of topics important to you on Headlines with Frankie Darcel.